I've practiced mindfulness meditation from time to time. If you haven't meditated before, it might be different than you think. It's not a state of relaxation exactly, although it can be a calming experience. In fact, mindfulness meditation involves sustained attention, usually attention to the breath. This isn't because there is something special with regard to the sound and feel of breathing. Rather, it provides a continuous focal point to which you can anchor your attention. The point of the practice, from my novice perspective, is to break down the narrative, self-referential chatter that goes on in the mind, just beneath the surface, essentially, all of our waking lives. The intention is to simply experience the contents of consciousness as they come, from a non-evaluative, non-judgmental perspective. You sit in a calm, focused state and passively note the influx of conscious contents, little sounds, feelings on the skin, the dark but oddly dynamic void of the visual space when your eyes are closed. With time, you might truly lose the sense of self, at least for brief moments. But this is not the same thing as losing consciousness. You are conscious. Your point of view persists, but without its self-referential constant thinking. To the extent that this succeeds, it's as if by focusing 100% of your attention on one simple, ongoing thing, you can come to exist as a receiver of experience, no longer its narrator, no longer personally entangled in the implications of the feelings, sensations, or thoughts that occur. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, as well as a devoted practitioner of mindfulness meditation. He can often be heard making the case that the self is not real. In his book, Waking Up, he writes, quote, The self that does not survive scrutiny is the subject of experience in each present moment. The feeling of being a thinker of thoughts inside one's head. The sense of being an owner or inhabitant of a physical body, which this false self seems to appropriate as a kind of vehicle. Even if you don't believe such a homunculus exists, perhaps you be because you believe on the basis of science that you are identical to your body and brain rather than a ghostly resident therein, you almost certainly feel like an internal self almost every waking moment. And yet, however one looks for it, this self is nowhere to be found. It cannot be seen amid the particulars of experience, and it cannot be seen when experience itself is viewed as a totality. However, its absence can be found, and when it is, the feeling of being a self disappears." Unquote. My goal is to explain consciousness in terms of the physical world. According to the temporally integrated causality landscape, which I described in episode 6, subsystems produce contents, and their meanings are determined by the relationships that they have to other subsystems and to the rest of the system, all of this from the point of view of that system. The point of view is emergent from a large integrated system of neuronal elements experiencing the dynamics of its subsystems. Harris notes through his personal history of meditative practice that the contents of consciousness simply occur and can be observed, but no self can be discovered. Thus Harris does not deny the persistence of his point of view during conditions of meditation. So what exactly does he deny when he says the self is nowhere to be found? that it cannot be seen amid the particulars of experience, that it cannot be seen when experience itself is viewed as a totality. What is meant by self that differentiates between it and the conscious point of view? Consciousness is subjective experience. Doesn't that imply that there is an experiencer? If so, then the experiencer is the self, the thing known to me as I, 
my point of view. Gilbert Ryle discusses this in his book, The Concept of Mind. He wrote, quote, Theorists have found themselves mocked in a similar way by the concept of I. Even Hume confesses that when he has tried to sketch all the items of his experience, he has found nothing there to answer to the word I. And yet, he's not satisfied that there does not remain something more and something important without which his sketch fails to describe his experience. Other epistemologists have felt similar qualms. Should I, or should I not, put my knowing self down on my list of the sorts of things that I can have knowledge of? If I say no, it seems to reduce my knowing self to a theoretically infertile mystery. Yet if I say yes, it seems to reduce the fishing net to one of the fishes which it itself catches." Unquote. Here I think Ryle helps to clarify the problem. The experiencer cannot experience itself just as I cannot see my own face. In the TICL framework, the point of view is that of the system. The subsystems within it produce contents which are meaningful from that point of view. I postulated in the description of the TICL in episode 6 that a subsystem is by definition a set of neuronal elements that have a degree of temporally integrated causality above that of the system as a whole that this is what distinguishes the activity of the subsystem from the rest of the system, from the background noise. But I admit that I have experienced in meditation, at least briefly, the loss of the sense of self. So the sense of self that we are discussing, that Harris and Ryle are referring to, is something inside of consciousness, some arrangement of contents with which we often, nearly always, identify. So the self is a construct that exists from the conscious point of view. If I am the point of view upon the contents of my consciousness, then myself, this construct with which I identify, cannot be me. Let's try to explore what this construct is. The self-construct includes the human body, certainly, but it also includes thoughts and feelings. So if the self-construct is understood to be the author of thoughts and the experiencer of feelings, then my misplaced identification with those thoughts and feelings might cause me to think that they are my feelings and my thoughts. If I achieve a state of meditation during which I can sense and make note of individual feelings or individual thoughts as they arise in consciousness, then individual feelings and thoughts are nothing more than conscious contents existing from my point of view, and it might be an error to assume ownership over any of them. Consider affect. If I say that I am anxious, what do I mean? If I am the point of view to which contents occur, how can I be anxious? I'm not saying that the point of view is anxious. How could it be? There must be some set of conceptual contents in my experience that I am labeling anxious and applying to myself. Mindfulness, the practice of paying attention to the present moment, is suggested to help alleviate such negative affects as anxiety. This might be occurring by means of a de-identification between the construct of self and the self as point of view. How then does the brain produce this sense of self-identity? Evidence implicates a set of cortical structures known collectively as the default mode network. Michael Pollan, the author of How to Change Your Mind, writes, quote, As mentioned, the default mode network appears to play a role in the creation of mental constructs or projections, the most important of which is the construct we call the self, or ego. This is why some neuroscientists call it the me network. 
If a researcher gives you a list of adjectives and asks you to consider how they apply to you, it is your default mode network that leaps into action. Nodes in the default network are thought to be responsible for autobiographical memory, the material from which we compose the story of who we are by linking our past experiences with what happens to us and with projections of our future goals. The achievement of an individual self, a being with a unique past and a trajectory into the future, is one of the glories of human evolution, but it is not without its drawbacks and potential disorders. The price of the sense of an individual identity is a sense of separation from others and nature. Self-reflection can lead to great intellectual and artistic achievement, but also to destructive forms of self-regard and many types of unhappiness." Unquote. Marcus Rakeley wrote in an article in the Annual Review of Neuroscience, quote, The brain's default mode network consists of discrete, bilateral, and symmetrical cortical areas in the medial and lateral parietal, medial prefrontal, and medial and lateral temporal cortices of the human, non-human primate, cat, and rodent brains. Its discovery was an unexpected consequence of brain imaging studies first performed with positron emission tomography, in which various novel, attention-demanding, and non-self-referential tasks were compared with quiet repose, either with eyes closed or with simple visual fixation. The default mode network consistently decreases its activity when compared with activity during these relaxed, non-task states." Unquote. Rakeley describes three major subcomponents of the default mode network. These are the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, and the posterior cingulate together with the lateral parietal cortex. The ventral medial prefrontal cortex supports emotional processing, social behavior, and motivational drive. It responds to disruptions in bodily homeostasis. The dorsal medial prefrontal cortex is involved in self-referential thought processes. And the posterior portions of the default mode network process the recollection of prior experiences. Presumably, the default mode network evolved as a means to achieve adaptive behavioral outcomes in the context of a functional, emergent consciousness. The default mode network seems to be responsible for the production of the self-construct. Interestingly, studies on meditation and psychedelics have found reduced activity in the default mode network under conditions that are subjectively associated with the loss of the sense of self. Pollan writes, quote, This sense of merging into some larger totality is, of course, one of the hallmarks of the mystical experience. Our sense of individuality and separateness hinges on a bounded self and a clear demarcation between subject and object. But all that may be a mental construction, a kind of illusion, just as the Buddhists have been trying to tell us. The psychedelic experience of non-duality suggests that consciousness survives the disappearance of the self, that it is not so indispensable as we and it like to think. Carhart Harris suspects that the loss of a clear distinction between subject and object may help explain another feature of the mystical experience, the fact that the insights it sponsors are felt to be objectively true, revealed truths rather than plain old insights. It could be that in order to judge an insight as merely subjective, one person's opinion, you must first have a sense of subjectivity, which is precisely what the mystic on psychedelics has lost." Unquote. I argued in episode 3 that consciousness serves a function. I am aware of explicit goals and aspirations, 
aware of a composition of perceptual modalities that together present opportunities to achieve those goals and threats against them. No part of my brain, no separate modular network shares the point of view from which I evaluate all of these conscious contents. This positions me, the mind, that emerges across this integrated system to influence the behaviors of this human animal in the material world. I admit that, though, that the mechanism of this causal relationship between me, the point of view, and the cortical networks which conduct the apparently voluntary motor outputs remains a mystery. I hypothesize that the voluntary direction of attention and thought occurs analogously to voluntary motor outputs. The key difference between voluntary motor output from the cortex and voluntary cognitive functional outputs from the cortex is that the former target muscle cells in the periphery, while the latter target neuronal elements within the thalamocortical system itself. Interestingly, most, if not all, of these output neurons seem to be located in the frontal lobe. Voluntary attention and, and intentional thought processes feed into the integrated system where they cause changes in local firing activities and thereby give rise to or alter subsystems that are experienced as conscious contents. This causal chain between voluntary outputs and the alteration of conscious contents in the form of emergent thoughts, memories, mental images, etc., might lead to a sense of authorship of these contents. In the kind of meditation that I have done, the voluntary attentional outputs are focused upon the breath. This is intended to allow me, the point of view, to witness what occurs in my mind when I cease to engage in voluntary movement and thinking. The procedure is challenging for beginners in meditation because we are accustomed to allowing our cognitive processes to wander from place to place, waking up memory traces and fancies of all sorts and driving them into the conscious composition under a kind of compulsive and continuous control. It can be astonishingly hard to just shut the fuck up and be, to just hold our position and listen. The default mode network seems to be responsible for this difficulty. To conclude, it looks to me like there are two distinct concepts of self. The first is the self as point of view. As long as we are conscious, we are identical to this point of view upon the contents of our consciousness. The thing which answers to I in the statement, I see a bird, is the self as point of view. The second concept of self is an illusory construct that seems to answer to I in the statement, I am anxious. Here, the first self, the point of view, is mistakenly identified with the self-construct. We each have a sense of our past experiences and how they have led to the present moment, but the point of view can only access the past through the present recall or reinstatement of their traces in the present. In this sense, self as point of view has no past. Rather, it exists as the present, whatever the present is from its, well, point of view. The self-construct has a past and a future. It has hopes and fears. It has goals which I, the point of view, am aware of and feel belong to me. Finally, the self-construct has a personality, has modes of thinking. I, the point of view, am subject to the thoughts and feelings and longings as contents in my experience. Where do the thoughts come from? Often they seem to just appear in consciousness, but the sense that I am their author appears too. Disentangling these two concepts of self, 
might require years of meditative practice, or at least a few heroic doses of psilocybin, in order to quiet the default mode network and experience consciousness free of its nefarious interference. If and when I complete such a journey and return once again to the self-construct I am so familiar with, I'll share with you whatever it is that I discover. In the meantime, it's a good idea to keep an open mind. I have had only one experience tripping on psilocybin, and it was a long time ago. I might have been 19 or 20 years old. They talk about set and setting. These couldn't have been much worse. I was with two friends in a small backyard in Orlando, Florida, immediately adjacent to a busy overpassing freeway. And I definitely took a higher dose than I should have. Needless to say, the experience was bad, very bad. The peak of this ordeal was the most harrowing several hours of my life. I remember feeling like an alien that had possessed this person. Everything was novel. I knew his name and where we were, but I didn't feel personally connected to him. I kept wrestling with the question, what am I and what am I supposed to be doing? At the time, I used to smoke a lot of cigarettes. An hour into the trip, I couldn't smoke. I didn't understand why I would smoke, why I would do anything. I was disassociated from my tendencies, my personality, what I thought I had been. Everything scared me. I was engaged in a battle to hold my identity together at all costs, on the implicit assumption that a failure to do so meant death. I was braced, terrified against wave after wave after wave of assault on my selfhood. Looking back from nearly 20 years later, I should have been in an entirely different setting under the guidance of a trusted and psychedelically experienced person. That person probably would have helped me to just let go of control. I would not have died. I might have discovered a lot. A portal had torn in the fabric of my reality, and I had dug in to resist it. I didn't want to go on a trip. I wanted to go home. Rather than going toward the damn light, and I clung uselessly to the life I had known, a life that I could not get back to in that moment. So I spent the time fighting in the hell of purgatory, neither safe and secure in the familiarity of my self-construct, nor basking in the oneness of a transcendent new world. Maybe someday the time will be right for me to face that psychedelic portal once again, and when I do, I hope that I have the courage to pass through it.